1: What's the, the What's the words?
2: Crazy, crazy,
1: crazy, 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 crazy. Those <laughs> are the words. Shot by his man. By the way, we're not recording
2: this on the same day. I'm not changing shirts. Oh, remember we did this last time? Yep, yep, yep. In case you didn't know, this is a
1: totally different day, yeah. obviously, than the last episode with Jesper Ising. Um,
2: How's it going, everybody? You are listening and watching the Command Zone podcast. I'm your host, Jimmy Wong. How's it? It's Josh Lee Kwai. I'm currently in China right now, most likely, and that's why we're recording a bunch of podcasts in a row. Through movie magic. He's actually here while
1: in China. It's amazing. And on Ixalan. So, hey. Yeah. In Azkanta. It's Azkanta. Yeah. Yeah. So today we're gonna to be answering some listener questions, like one we get a lot, which is my playgroup always targets me first. What do I do? Yeah. Um, is question. Temple of the False good actually sorry. False good. Is Aha. Temple of the False God actually bad? Now we know it's actually good. The <laughs> Freudian slip. And uh, how do you decide when to mulligan or not? But mm-hmm. before we get into all of that, we need to talk about our awesome sponsors. First of all, cardkingdom.com slash command zone. If you use that affiliate link when you order your Magic singles, cards, other products, You are supporting this podcast and Game Nights and all of our content and making sure that the lights stay on and all that stuff keeps flowing.
2: Yep. Our other sponsor for the show is Ultra Pro. Ultra Pro obviously makes a ton of the products that we get to give away every single time on Game Nights, as well as the Eclipse sleeves, which now Josh has retrofitted every single one of his decks to have. They make a lot of great products, and obviously they are also moving and evolving with the industry as it goes forward, so always a good sign to see. Thank you, Ultra Pro, for being a sponsor of the show.
1: And the final way to sponsor the show is directly by going to patreon.com slash Zone, where you can contribute directly to us. There are Patreon re- rewards. Uh, and also, we call out one lucky patron every single episode. And this episode is dedicated to... Nicholas, Nicholas Booth. Booth. Nicholas, you rock. You rock. Uh, and so let's just jump right into the questions here. And coincidentally, the first question is from Nicholas Booth. How do you hey. think he got chosen as the patron of the week? <laughs> <laughs> so Nicholas... Uh, I believe this is from an email. It has to be. It's way too long for Twitter. He emailed in. and uh, You'd he... be surprised, Josh. Uh... <laughs> some people get Sometimes 280 send... characters Yeah, yeah what
2: the heck? I tweet all the time about things. I want 280 characters. Actually, don't, don't give me that. No, privilege.
1: actually, whenever I see a tweet that's got 280 characters, I refuse to read it. <laughs> it's too much, man. <laughs> Dang. All right. Uh, from Nicholas Booth, he says, is it okay to lie in EDH politics? And then he says, now I want to clarify some things. Mm-hmm. The following does not refer to breaking the actual rules of magic. So he's not talking about lying like cheating. Right. The following does not refer to saying X and doing Y when Y is clearly contradictory to X. So he doesn't mean lie in the manner of like, I won't attack you, and then the very next turn, I attack you. What he's referring to is when it is not known by other players or it is about uh, something in the realm, realm of the future. It's like something that's hypothetical. So mm. as an example, he says, let's say I attack a player who has no blockers. Uh, While other players also don't have blockers and that player asks, well, why do you attack me and I reply with an answer that doesn't have to do anything about the truth in that situation. Uh, You know I say oh I chose randomly or whatever. I don't I I'm technically lying, but there's no way for them to ever know right because they would have to be able to read my mind in that instance. So the question is is that type of lying okay with you. I think this stems from our discussion with the professor when we were talking about like our no nos and Mm -hmm. I was like man if you lie to me it might be blood feud forever. But I was referring to, like, overt lying. Like, you say you won't attack me, then you attack it. Or you say, I won't destroy that thing, then you destroy it.
2: Yeah, this seems pretty harmless in terms of, like, you're not making a promise with the lie. You're just trying to deceive more than anything else. And as long as it's not malicious deceiving, I think that's totally fine. Especially if it's giving you a low political advantage. For instance, I like, let's say it's like, why'd you attack me? And goes like, well, obviously your deck is full of board wipes, so I just want to get... I want to draw those cards out of your hand. And if the other person goes, I don't have board webs, like, well, I don't know that. So, you know, like, you know, you can do stuff where you give a little different reason or put the blame somewhere else kind of thing, a little deflection. I can see that happening all the time.
1: I really like the word you use there, which is deceive. And Deceived. this to me is not the same as lying, deception. Right. It's sort of, it's spin. It's what politics really is. Yeah. Uh, so to me, this is totally fine as far as like, it's like I was advocating um, in a couple episodes back about just expressing concern about a specific card even though you know for sure you're not going to actually take action against it mm-hmm. in hopes to bring the other person and be like well I want to attack you with it just because I could get that for free by just saying something like man I really don't like that steel hell kite I don't think I'm going to remove it that's technically a lie well no, no, you could not like the Steel Hell You could, but you know whether you do or don't. Right, right, There's no way for the other players at the table to know, though. Unless and so, you're
2: really bad at lying.
1: And that's part of what <laughs> gamesmanship is, I think. And that's well within the realm of OK. I think this is all totally fine. Deception is actually one of the strategies you use. It's the Machiavellian part, the yeah. art of war part, stuff we always talk about. And I think that's a lot of where the strategy comes in, is using a little bit of social manipulation to get things to happen uh, you know in your favor so i'm i'm totally okay with it i think
2: blue players do this a lot uh, just holding up to blue mana just thinking just saying like hold on no way, hold on resp- okay okay i'll let it go touch the lands yeah you're good you, you're not lying you're not you're saying i might have a response by the way the word might says that you could also have no response Literally,
1: no response possible. But you might, right?
2: It's yeah. it's all
1: just planting a seed so that they worry about it or think about it. You're trying to manipulate them in a way, but I don't consider that lying. You're you're hiding information or sending out false signals, but that, I think those are different things.
2: Yeah, I think the 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 question too that Nicholas phrased it is: It okay to lie in EDH politics specifically? And I think that is totally fine as long as again it's not a malicious lie and it's not like, well, so and so, you know, like. <laughs> being like, well, so-and-so didn't pay his taxes this year, so I'm going to attack you for, it. like, what? <laughs> like, that's, 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 like, well, one, I didn't pay my taxes, but two, like, that's a, a sort of taking it beyond what the politics of the game, I think, dictate are okay.
1: All right, let's move on to the second question. This is from Josh. From not, not me, oh. but uh, they didn't provide a last name, so that's all I got. Josh says, I am the known good, quote unquote, player in my groups. Mm -hmm. And that that being the case, I've noticed my deck building strategy has evolved into making sure I can take the table long enough until I combo out or lose. I'm focused hard no matter what. I want to lower my deck's power level or change my strategy. But how do I do that with the knowledge that I will be focused no matter what? Hmm. When in doubt, kill Josh. That seems to be... Uh, a couple of my group's mottos. That's tough one. So this is one we hear a lot actually and I think, you know, one of the reasons we hear it a lot is within every play group everyone's going to sort of have a different amount of dedication to magic, right? For mm-hmm. some people in your group it's going to be just something they don't think about that much. They just pull their deck out, maybe they pick up a booster pack here and there, um and add cards now and then, but they're not like constantly thinking about their deck and focused on like improving it and thinking about past games and things like that. But then there's going to be the players And they're more likely to listen to a show like this Mm -hmm. because you're going on the internet and finding content and trying to figure out, like, how can I up my game? And you're often going to end up being, you know, having a higher win percentage than the other players in your playgroup. And you're going to, I think, find yourself in this position where, listen, that's not going to be a secret. If you're one of the better players in your playgroup, everyone at the table is going to know that. If they don't, they will find out very quickly as well. And they're going to respond accordingly because, like Josh says here, when in doubt, kill him first seems to be the motto in some of his playgroups, and that's because that's a reputation that you've earned. There's nothing, right like that hasn't occurred out of nowhere and for no reason. That occurs for a reason. Um, so the question is, how do I lower the power level of my decks or change my strategy so that stops happening? The problem does not seem to be
2: you lowering the power level of your decks if people insist on killing you first no matter what. Like if you built up a reputation, it's also partially irresponsible to know how to deal with that reputation. Cause just cause if you walk in the table being like, oh, this is a really unpowerful deck, someone that's playing a precon might go, like, it doesn't matter. The power level, even if it is like twenty percent less powerful, is still insurpassable for something for this kind of deck to beat, right? Or, you know, it's like really tough because you need to clearly demonstrate to people that the deck you're playing is not of the same power level, but it's also hard to do that because then are you just sacrificing making a fun deck just so that people don't kill you
1: first? Is there a better way of going about it? I mean, I think, first of all, the thought process can't be like, I'm going to play one time and I'm going to fix this. Yeah. I'm going to play 10 times and I'm going to fix it. In all likelihood, you gain this reputation over the course of a number of play sessions. For you to be able to just undo all of that by building like one week deck is just not realistic. Or fun. It's you're, just not going to work out in the way I think you might plan for it to do
2: to, to happen.
1: If you do want to change it, I think you're going to have to make a concentrated effort, and it's going to take time. You're going to have to basically spend the same amount of time you spent building your reputation as a strong player to build your reputation as not as strong of a player mm-hmm. or a player. And this goes back to something we talked about, I think, in the episode with Professor. Um, it's a poker term that I use, which is you have to give action to get action. Right. In Commander, giving action means allowing people to have their fun not comboing out, not playing super powerful things all the time. And that gives you the reputation as somebody like, that guy's not always just going to be ruthless. So I can do some other stuff, and I don't have to attack him first because he's not going to be super ruthless. But the problem is you've built your reputation now. You are in the ruthless camp. They are saying, Mm -hmm. I don't know, when in doubt, attack Josh because he's not going to ever show me any mercy or let me have any of my fun. He's never just going to screw around. Yeah. So... If you want to change that reputation, you just have to dedicate yourself to a large amount of time demonstrating that you are you are going to allow people to have their fun.
2: Yeah, and it also might be something where you talk to the group being like, look, in the past five games, you have targeted me first to the point where I can't even play anything. Can you guys maybe not <laughs> do that? You know, like it, it could be one of those things because let's say that they did kill you for good reason. Like by turn two, you play the Hermit Druid every single game. Then, you know, your, your opponents have no choice. But if it's like turn two, you played... A signet, and then they went after you. You know, obviously, I think the skewing of their perspective towards you could be fixed
1: by having a conversation in that regard. Or, but it can only be fixed if they say, "Okay, don't kill you," and then you don't win that next game. Do not win the game when you make that conversation with them, because otherwise, they're just saying, "Well, see." Yeah. Don't even like play. I mean, like,
2: like purposefully (laughs) do not win that game. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Because even if it's like you somehow stumble upon the victory, they're not going to remember that Mm -mm. you stumbled upon. They're going to remember the part where you're like, "Don't kill me, please," and then. You ended up doing the thing that they
1: shouldn't. They're like, why did I let you off the hook? But also be realistic. You no matter what happens that one game, they're not going to suddenly change everything they think about you as a yeah, player. Never. You have to show over the course of a longer period of time, you know. And again, I believe heavily in that philosophy. Um whereas I will try to win some games, but some games I'll mess around. And I am really looking at the games I mess around where I'm not really It's not that I'm not trying to win. I'm just not going to go find the best card in every situation. I might find Minds Dilation and play it. That's a good card. It's not an amazing card in this situation. Because I really want to keep my reputation in that nice wheelhouse of like, Josh will mess around sometimes and do the suboptimal play. And so I don't have to just attack him first every time because he will show no mercy. And you have to work really hard to keep yourself in that. You know, because if you go up here, now you're too ruthless. You know, and you don't want to be way down here where you're just losing a ton of games. So yeah. good luck to you, Josh. It's a tough juggling act, but, again, it's going to take time more than anything. It's nice that you got to answer a question you asked yourself.
2: That's good. <laughs> I'll, I'll include one later on from me, too. All right, question number three. I, if I was
1: going to do that, I would just use a pseudonym. I wouldn't actually said Josh. I'm, a, not, I'm, I'm smarter than that. Unless. Unless. <laughs> Jury's still out. All right, question number three comes from Kevin Anthony.
2: Kevin asks... I've seen a lot of talk online recently about Temple of the False God with many prominent commander uh, players or I guess podcasts calling the card bad. Yet I've heard you guys talk about being a stable card in the format before and it occupies a spot next to Sol Ring in the opening of every Game Nights video. Who is wrong about this card? He's talking about the intro sequence we have in Game Nights where we're sliding it into a sleeve. Um,
1: First of all. That doesn't mean... Yeah, just because it's, like, next to a card. It just means that the shot was good, and Temple of the False God is a card that sees play in Commander. Although I do think... I do not think Temple of the False God is bad. I do think it's good and belongs in most decks. I do, too. I think that the the way
2: that people see it and the way that people keep hands with it is the problem with it. Um, I also
1: think the way they build their deck with it. But go ahead.
2: Yeah, so for instance, let's say you draw an opening hand. It's got land, Temple of the False God, signet, and then uh, four playables. You can't keep that hand. You cannot keep that hand. The way that Temple of the False God looks in that hand is it's as though you drew six cards and the card that is Temple of the False God will not work until you have four other lands in play and then you can play it. But when you do get a land, let's say your hand is three lands in the Temple of the False God, then you have to look at your hand as though you are still one card down and not treat Temple of the False God like a land. It's sort of like when I put Maze of Ith in the deck and I'm like, oh, that's a land, right? It's like, no, you actually have to look at it in a different perspective when it can actually function. As a land. For instance, if you have Maze of Ith and an Urborg in your deck, then sometimes that maze will be able to tap for mana. But for the most part, it is not a land until certain requirements have been met for Temple specifically. It's a land you can play,
1: but it's not going to be a, a useful land for you. I love the comparison to Maze of Ith, right? I think that's exactly how you should look at Temple of the False God. Maze of Ith doesn't occupy a, a slot in your deck that counts as a land. When you're going to Tapped Out and you build your deck and you're like, I want 38 lands in this deck. If you have Maze of Ith in there, you need that's your 39th land. It's not mm-hmm. your 38th land. Temple of the False God occupies what we'd call the ramp category, but it should not occupy something in the land category. Yeah, maybe so, it's like half foot in at most. Yeah, I wouldn't even count it. So like, if I want 37 lands in a deck, I'll have 38 lands, but Temple of the False God is the 38. It's a ramp spell. Think of it like, um, right. like Explosive Vegetation or something. It costs four mana to cast. It costs four lands to cast it. Right. But Without when you do, tapping. you immediately get two lands, and it doesn't actually cost you any mana. It's, you know, it's like once you have four lands in play, you can play this spell. Yeah. Right? and it, And it taps for two mana. But you can't think of it as a regular land. So I think the card is good, and it really helps out a lot of color combinations. You know, Boros, Mono White... Red, white, Grixis, all of anything without green wants to run Temple of the False God, but you've got to be smart about deck building. And then when you get it in your hand, you're not thinking of it as a land, you're thinking of it as a spell. Yeah, you almost have to put it like you almost have to put it next to this the five drops, so
2: the six drops in your yeah. hand, because you just will not effectively be able to use it until then, unless you're ramping out lands onto the battlefield. Yeah.
1: So if you're counting it like I've got thirty-three lands in my deck. You, is Temple the False God one? Well, you have 32 lands in yeah, your deck. Yeah, and then you're yeah. even you're shooting yourself even more in the yeah. foot
2: because, like, what? You have a, 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 a chance draw to draw. You're going to draw less lands it, in general. Yeah, yeah, and you have a chance to draw it in your opening hand. Let's say you are, like, desperately top-decking for a land and Temple comes up. It's just, like, there's a lot of downsides if you don't build around it as though it was... If it wasn't a real land in your deck.
1: But on those times... If you don't think of it as a land and you think of it more like a spell, on those times where you do have it in your hand and you only have three lands in play, it's... It shouldn't strike you as like, oh, this card is bad. Yeah. This is a problem you're having where you couldn't cast any 4-drop in that instance. And if you look at it like that, it's it's a land count problem more than anything, maybe, if that's happening a lot. It's at least not the problem with Temple of the False God itself.
2: Yeah, so I would say that your friends and the people you've heard from aren't necessarily wrong. I would just give Temple of the False God a different look and perspective before just
1: outright saying, nope, it's bad. All right question number four another question we get asked a lot uh in fact we get asked so much i didn't actually attribute the question to anyone (laughs) it's do tutors count as card draw nope well nope well nope they account as i mean there's two ways to answer this question the first is the tutor itself when you cast it is that card draw the answer is no no you you are getting a card Depends on the tutor. Actually, some you're not. Enlightened tutor, vampiric right. tutor. A lot of them put it on the tutor, but demonic tutor. Yes, you did technically put a card into your ad, but that's a cantrip, right? Play a card, get a card. That's yeah. not card draw. Um it's card th- selection, obviously. Yeah.
2: I mean, like there's a lot of upsides to tutors, but thinking about it as card draw does not make sense.
1: But the fact that it can go get your card draw spell, and we've talked about this before, mm-hmm. whereas tutors kind of count as every effect in your deck that they can go tutor for. so It's like the spike in demonic. Of your deck. Yeah, Demonic Tutor counts as every card in your deck plus two mana, right? Mm-hmm. So is it a single target removal spell? Yeah. Is it a board wipe? Yeah. Is it ramp? Yeah. yeah. Is it... A creature? Is, is it, it a so, walker? Yep. So yep. in that respect, is it card draw? Yeah. Yeah, it is. I can go get Rhystic Study with it mm-hmm. where I, if I didn't have that in my hand before. It's a very flexible card draw spell it's a modal spell almost yeah enlightened tutor is different in that it can't get the same amount of things like enlightened tutor is depending on what you have in your deck it might not be single target removal you might not have oblivion ring or something Ancient like that Lights, yeah yeah it's probably not enlightened tutor is probably not a board wipe i guess you could go get november disc but it's less likely to be but if you have risk Study in your deck, a lightning tutor, yeah, it's sort of card draw in what it can get, but yeah. the, the tutoring itself is not card draw.
2: Yeah, and the, again, the, the reason that we put tutors in our deck is so that if we need a card draw spell, we can grab it. If we need a board wipe, we can get it. You know, It's to give yourself that flexibility. In fact, a lot of tutors count as card disadvantage to a certain degree because you yeah. actually replace a draw step with that card. So let's say you're trying to make sure you hit all of your land drops. You're guaranteed not going to if you put the card on top of your library when you look for it, yep. unless you have a way to draw through that card.
1: All right. I well, hope that answers that question. I know we'll get asked it again um, at some point. Yep. Question number five is from Matt Newman. Uh, Matt begins by explaining he's a recently converted Yu-Gi-Oh player, which I thought was interesting. He says that he's really enjoyed his foray into Commander, but the multiplayer setting has him flummoxed a bit. Good word. Uh, so this is actually from Matt. Would you guys have any tips on how to play a more political game? In your experience, is it worth it trying to adjust a deck to help incorporate politics or just work on your own game plan and try to make deals throughout a game? In general, I haven't found that many cards that incorporate politics that well.
2: There are Assault Suits out there. There's like Rite of the Raging Storm, one of our preview cards. And those cards are pretty powerful in their own right, but at the same time, it gives players and everyone else a lot of chances to make their own choices and to choose what goes towards where you know, like, oh, who's going to get this token randomly off of this thing? So I always prefer to to make my deck to work the way I want it to and then play the politics in-game to make sure that that end goal is met.
1: Yeah, 100% agree. I don't think I've ever played a card only because, you know, it allows me to play politics. Because every card, in some respect, allows you to play politics. Yeah. Uh, that's kind of one of the cool things about Commander. And... We'll talk about cards sometimes and say, well, it can be political because, and that's kind of like a one of the upsides of the card, but I want that to be gravy, mm-hmm. you know? So let's say I've got a, a mana rock and it taps for mana, but I could actually give that mana to other players if I feel like. Right. I think Ride the Lane. I don't, yeah, I don't like that. play that because I can. That's just an upside of it. I'm playing it because most of the time I'm going to give myself the mana. Yep. But the ability to occasionally give somebody else mana is, you know, something that, one out of 50 times I might be able to use or leverage. Mm-hmm. Swords of Plowshares is really that too, though, because I can cast it on many different things. Yeah. So sometimes I can get rid of something that's problematic for you in exchange for a favor. Now, most of the time, I'm going get, to get rid of something that's problematic for me. But Swords of Plowshares is not a political card. It just has some political gravy on top of it. And that's how I would build my decks. I would not be looking to build... I mean, you can build a fun deck, a theme deck, that's all about political cards, and that's kind of the theme of that deck. That's I think that's a different thing. But in general, most of my decks... I'm just playing cards that are advancing my own game plan or covering weaknesses, yeah. and I plan on finding those little political situations on my own throughout the game to sort of you know exploit or navigate or negotiate or whatever.
2: Yeah, Matt, it is good, though, that you're thinking about having a game plan. I think that's very important when building a deck. At the very baseline, even if you're building a deck for politics, the game plan should be, I'm going to do this to be political or whatever, or the game plan should be, I'm doing this so I can beat face with this creature. you know. But having that game plan will help solidify everything else. So you're already on the right path.
1: Good job, good job, good y- job. Y- Yu-Gi-Oh taught you well. Good job. I have no idea how Yu-Gi-Oh works, even though we were in that rocket jump video where it is bizarre. <laughs> I don't know if
2: you've ever played Yu-Gi-Oh out there, listeners or watchers, but we I, we you know we did a little skit and we'll post it and we'll tell you guys. Will about it be when out it by posted. now? Um, it should be out sometime in November. So we'll talk about it on an end step. I don't know the exact dates yet, but Josh and I were playing two shady uh, Yu-Gi-Oh players. Yu-Gi-Oh players, yeah, gambling for for cards, anteing and. I read the rules, and I was like, what is, what is happening? I actually
1: watched some Yu-Gi-Oh stuff oh. on YouTube just to get an idea for how they move the cards around and stuff. They flick the cards just like we Oh, do they definitely flick the cards yeah. and they shuffle and But I had no idea what was going on. I'm watching, like, the Yu-Gi-Oh World Championships, and I'm just like... They also, like, do this thing like, where they
2: slam it down, and, yeah. you know, they look at the other player. They don't even announce what they're doing, and the other player oh. just knows. <laughs> Magic, you usually say, like, I'm going to play Scavenging Ooze. Uh,
1: Although, you know, you've seen, like, the... The Brian Kibler, thing, yeah, the bonfire the, where they just yeah, flip it over top, and top yeah. it, and then everybody goes, because uh, they know what happens.
2: Yeah. I mean, that's a little different. This is like every move. They're just silent, dead staring at each other. I'm like,
1: geez, you guys are crazy. <laughs> you guys are so into it right now. All right. Question number six is from Jason Faber. How do you decide whether you should mulligan or not? This is a good question. We I'm surprised we haven't tackled this on an, on an episode before. But yeah. well, because it's not an entire episode, but we could do a lengthy discussion, Depending I think. on mulligan rules, it changes a lot. So let's say
2: we're playing by normal rules, which is after you mulligan, once you go down to six, and then you're allowed to scry one.
1: Now, some well, players, no, no, no. you go down to seven. You first. go
2: down to seven, and then you go down to six, yeah. yeah. So for commander, you get a, a quote-unquote free mull. In um, all multiplayer magic. Yeah. I think you should almost always take the free mull if you are even in the slightest doubt of your hand. Um, especially if it's like, well, I need this to happen in order to have this work. You just it's you can't fall that far behind the commander because when you lose a turn, it's not like your opponent just gets one turn. Three opponents get a turn as opposed to your one. So the the insurmountable odds are just harder and harder to get over after a certain point.
1: But what specifically are you looking for in your hand to know whether it's even
2: borderline or not? If I have some kind of card draw that I know I can reasonably cast, I almost always keep it. Does that mean I can cast it with the cards currently in my hand? I can either cast it with a card currently in my hand or I know that my deck is one that is going to be able to make sure I can get there. So for instance, like, oh, there's a rampant growth in here and an auristic Study, and I have two, two lands.
1: Well, I, you can cast that with the card in your hand. Right,
2: right, right, right. That's a good point. Um, it, I think you shouldn't have to... I think you should have... Like, the ideal hand for me is three lands, um, maybe four. Two cards you can cast with those cards in your hand and then two cards that are important to your deck or, you know, like you want to have in your hand. So it could be like a... a seven mana board wipe or something. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I think for me I'm looking for mostly the same things. I want to be able to cast I want to be able to look at my hand and cast at least a couple of the cards. I almost always want three lands. Two's acceptable depending. So if I have a ramp card, mm-hmm. but th- really I'm I don't know if I'm looking at lands exactly or if I'm looking like amount of mana that I guarantee to have access to without drawing any other mana source. Right. So if I've got a signet and two lands that's three mana, that's fine. I know that by, you know, turn three, I'm going to have access to at least three mana, hopefully four. I really would like in that instance to be able to draw some cards somehow in my hand. Um, I would also consider the colors. I think, you know, let's, right. let's say I'm in a three-color deck and all my mana is red mana. It's not great. I'm probably going to mull that hand depending. Yeah. You know, let's say I have, you know, two mountains and then some kind of mana rock that only creates red mana. Uh you know, one of those diamonds or something. Even I don't know like two I really mounts and a signet that may create one of the
2: other colors. But it's I don't have the, my third. You don't have your third, yeah. I mean, like you want to make sure that you're, it's like, you know, going on a road trip, doing anything, making sure your car has the gas, making sure that you are ready to take and tackle on whatever is at the table. Also, if you see that you're playing against a bunch of really aggressive players or a bunch of players with combo, That's that can change point. your hand as well. So, for instance, if you have a counter spell in your hand and you know that uh, johnny over there is going to go off and be infinite in no time whatsoever then that hand increases in value so you may even be like well i only have two lands but i know i only have one counter spell so i need to keep this
1: because if i if he if he goes off then i can't win no matter what kind of stuff i think there's some stuff that throws a wrench into this and causes us to make you know worse decisions there's two cards in particular that will do it one is soul ring mm-hmm. and i see actually you see a surprising amount of people who get soul ring turn one and end up having a bad hand that they basically kept because they had a land in a soul ring. If you only have land soul ring, I don't think it's probably that great, depending on what the land is.
2: Because the other cards, but yeah, that you only have three mana. Let's say you never draw another land for the next three turns. Are you gonna still be able to play anything? Or are you hundred percent rely on being able to draw that land? And
1: you only have one colored mana. So yeah. there's probably a lot of cards you can draw that you can't even play with that one colored mana. I mean, maybe that land maybe that. One land is a command tower, in which case that keep is probably okay. (laughs) But also, yeah, if you don't draw a land the next turn and you don't draw one the next turn, that soul ring didn't do anything for you. You're now just equal on the amount of mana that everybody else had. Why soul ring is good is because on turn two, you have four mana, and turn three, you have five mana. Mm -hmm. If you're not going to have land on turn two and three, then all of a sudden you're just kind of playing a soul ring and then being equal to everybody. That's not what I want. Um And then the other one, the other card I think that makes people sort of screw this up is Sensei's Divining Top. Yeah, I'm I'm at fault for this 100%. This is the one that still gets me a lot.
2: Yeah, I mean, you're like, great, I can play this and I can look at the top three cards and always make sure I hit that land. But the thing is, after you look at the top three cards, you're only looking at one new card each turn because you're drawing a card per turn, and then when you do the next top three, you've seen
1: two of those cards you only see one more. So it's not like you get a fresh look at three every time. It's pretty easy to get into a situation where the top three cards are not lands and you're just you can't do anything. The top's not helping you get out of that position. Yeah. So I'm Now having shuffle effects is nice, so having fetch lands and the Sensei's Divine top makes me
2: more inclined to keep that.
1: Yeah, I think if I had a fetch land and the top and that was it. No, 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 because no. you can't even play
2: that. You need fetch land, land, top for me to really yeah. be happy keeping that hand.
1: in. Which case, you got two lands in a top. I think two lands in a top is mostly fine, yeah, uh, because you just really need to find a third and then, especially if one of them was a fetch, but one land in top, definitely don't keep that hand. Two lands on top is still questionable. I would basically i want three lands. What well, <laughs> like, about
2: ancient tomb and top? What I did for game nights, one yeah, time.
1: no, I don't think that's good. Again, no. that's one land in top and no colors, no, yeah, oh. yeah. But top gets you in that kind of... And a lot of times when I'll draw my opening hand and I have a top or soul ring, I'll kind of look at the hand without that card.
2: Uh Uh-huh. And say, would I keep
1: this hand without that card? And if the answer is no, I probably won't. Soul ring will change it more than top in that instance where maybe I got two lands and soul ring and it's my third mana then I will, but I don't think one land in either of those is good, and two land in either one is probably still not you're great. You're just putting yourself up for
2: such a blowout for your your own sake if you do that, because again, you're not just losing one turn,
1: you're losing every person at the table's turn. You, you get far behind very quickly. I think something else you have to consider is your deck, obviously, and I think when you have a lot of decks, this gets a little bit tougher, because it's like, okay, this deck has X amount of ramp, or X amount of card draw, or my my commander does one of those things, ramp or card draw, mm-hmm. then it would change that calculation a lot. Just keep in mind what your commander is. Also, what CMC your commander's at, how right. dire it is that you get them out. Like, if you're playing Animar, you need to get Animar out on turn three. Yeah. You need a starting hand that will cast Animar on turn three. You don't want a starting hand with only two lands, because if you never hit that third land, your deck won't even start to go. Yep. Um, unless you have a Birds of Paradise or something else that's going to get you there. Again, that would count as, I guess I said land, but when I really meant mana um it's that glass cannon yeah yeah but i would consider i would consider that stuff pretty heavily as far as like what my commander is what the buildup of the deck is you know certain decks have like that Tashana deck that i played on game nights that has like 32 ramp cards because all the elves (laughs) tap for mana you know so i might be able to start with one forest because i have so many you know other things but a deck that doesn't have that wouldn't be able to even think about it so yeah yeah All right. Question number seven comes from Matt Black. This is actually
2: a very good question, and I don't know if my answer is right, actually. (laughs) Uh, I've heard, don't counter the tutor, counter what they find. Not sure if it's a good idea or
1: not. I think it depends on on basically two factors. Yeah. Well, really just one factor, I think. The factor is, are they playing a recursion type of deck for the effect? Right. So... If they're playing Carador Marin, whatever, and they go to tutor, I want to counter the tutor. Because they don't care if I counter the thing, it's gonna go to the graveyard where they yeah. can get it back. If they're playing a deck that's not built around recursion, you know, if you're playing an Animar deck, I probably want to counter what you tutor for because now you don't also have the ability to tutor for it again or draw it in some other way. Yeah, that's I definitely the reanimation
2: thing makes a huge difference. I didn't even think about that. Um for me it's just are you trying to hold that counter up for someone else in this turn cycle? Like, let's say the next person that went after you tutors for something, but you know that Josh, who's two seats away, is the, most biggest, the biggest danger in the threat. Do you need to save your tutor for that? In which case, wait for it. If you have, like, a really conditional tutor, though, and it's, like, counter-target creature spell, and you know that they're searching for anything in the deck, then obviously you're in a real rough spot, because then you're hoping they play a creature that you can counter off it. But I would say, in general...
1: Yeah, well, but if you have Swan Song, it's not yeah. going to counter a creature. You have to counter the tutor.
2: Yeah, and Swan Song works in a way that is exactly as the name implies, is that it's like this out-of-nowhere, like, coup de grace, like, thank goodness you're here, kind of save your thing. So, you want, I mean, like, I think holding on to counter magic is a really viable play. You just have to be careful because you could also just sit there and hold on to it forever, and then what's the point of it being in your deck?
1: I do think the default, all things being equal, is counter the thing they tutored for. Yeah. But you do have to consider the other factors of, like, what kind of deck is it? Is it the type of deck where if I counter the thing, it's just going to come right back out of the graveyard? In which case, I don't yeah. want them to have it in their hand at all, so i got to counter it na- counter the tutor. But that's not... You know, the percentage times when that's the right play is, like, 10 or 15% compared to, most of the time, counter what they tutor for. Also, they might tutor for something that you don't even care about or you want to happen. Like, maybe yeah. they got a board wipe or a single target removal spell. And so Good you... Point. Yeah, so... That's how I would think about that.
2: I would also say that countering at the right time when they try and cast the spell, if they can't get it back from the graveyard, there's also a huge tempo blowout for them as opposed to them paying three mana for a
1: a tutor spell. That's a good point. If they tutor for Tooth and Nail, then go to cast Tooth and Nail. They've wasted 11 mana rather than two mana or whatever. exactly. It's way better for you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, All right. Question number eight. On this one, the names have been uh, omitted to protect the innocent. Uh huh. <laughs> Sometimes people email us and they're like, "Listen, if you talk about it on the show, please don't mention my name. <laughs> if you say that, we will not mention your name." Pretty as sure in this n- case. Pretty sure the the play group should know though. <laughs> they, yeah. Well, there's probably a lot of people this applies to, right? They're like, it's "Wait, true. I didn't think this might be John. John, did you write that?" He's like, "No, no, I really didn't. I didn't. I swear." Why, so, is, why is it username John? So oh, whoever no. asked to have their identity not revealed, you're screwing over John here. Yeah, sorry, yeah. John. Sorry, John. How do you try and deal with someone in a playgroup when they complain constantly about being a target, yet they build decks that kind of make them a threat at the table? Now, this is a callback to our earlier question. So, this is the flip side. Yeah. How do you deal with the people that are the same people that earlier complained that they, they are, are the v- first target? Yeah, and yeah. they're making
2: the... I don't know. I mean, like, if it's that hard to really get the message through after not after like teaming up and killing them a few times, I... I wish you the best of luck because usually that's the best way for someone to realize, Oh, okay. I do. I can't just play like this or whatever uh, is when they lose or when three other people at the table all have vendettas against that person and we'll, and we'll relentlessly swing at them until they go down. Like, I don't know. Th- that's like not as fun to me because it's like hazing someone like a trial by fire to try and teach them something.
1: But listen, if you leave people no other out, but to kill you, otherwise, like I said, you don't, give any action you're not going to get any yeah. action so to me i would just make sure that i'm explaining to them why that's happening if you're complaining like you guys always target me first my response if is going to be like yes because Here's you why. make that the strategical imperative yeah and that's in your seat as soon as you start playing a little bit looser having a little bit more fun not just trying to be as ruthless and merciless as possible then maybe we won't do it until then this you get you get what you get like yeah yeah you get what you give you are
2: being a threat for your deck power and all that stuff, and we haven't seen a clear demonstration that you want to
1: change. So, yeah. and by the point. way, you doing that one time is not going to change our mind. Nope. We need to see like a concentrated effort over time. Yeah, yeah. You do that, you won't be the first target. You don't listen. This is the way that like, this is how strategy games work. That's how it works. <laughs> yeah. Um, question number nine. Spencer, Spencer, Spencer. I've been playing a couple of decks for a while, and they're starting to get stale. There hasn't been anything printed in a while that goes in them, and I'm not having fun playing them. Do you guys have any advice on what to do in a situation like this? Well, my first thing is you can always
2: just disassemble it, and that's very hard for Commander players to do, but if you really aren't finding excitement to play that deck anymore, or maybe the mechanic you built it around just doesn't work, and even if they did release new cards, it wouldn't have been that great. For instance, I remember when Energy came out in Cal Edition, I was like, that's it, I'm going to build an Energy-themed deck and I thought about it and realized that if energy never comes back, then this is going to be a two set deck. And then like, obviously a lot of proliferate. So like
1: I would just disassemble that deck if I'm not having fun with it anymore. You know, that's great advice. And I think that once you do it, it's very freeing because what happens is your deck has a bunch of cards in it. And you're like, you know, I don't want to take that. I, I want to use that card in another deck or I'd build another deck, but it's in this deck. Yeah. But I never play that deck. And, but it's hard to take that part, that deck because I spent all that time building it. And I whatnot. don't want to, yeah. I don't want to take all the sleeves out. Yeah. I don't wanna, yeah. And once you do, a lot of times, like I've done this recently because of game nights where I've sort of been forced to take apart some decks to build other ones. Yep. And now I have this big pile of cards and I'm like, I have this, i have a sort of feast and famine and you know, oh, yeah. And then I'm like, oh, I can build a whole nother deck and I'm excited again. And so I think disassembling the deck is actually really good advice. Not to mention, sometimes that's the best way to make an old, stale deck that
2: doesn't work better is that you take it apart, you put it across the table, and realize, wow, I have six nine drops. Yeah. You know, or like, wow, I don't have any ramp in this deck, or there's no card draw. You know, so that's a great way to rebuild that deck from the ground up, should you choose. Otherwise, it's a great way to to
1: cannibalize that deck. You can always put it back together right down the deck list. It's not going to be like, yeah, like you're not going to lose anything. You'll still have all those cards. Um, Another thing I would say, and this sounds a little bit like, lack of inspiration to build new decks. Yeah. Um borrow some of your friends' decks. Just be like, "Hey, can I play one of your decks?" This is, that might just get you a taste for what you like, something else you like. I think a lot of people think if they do that that I'm going to want to build exactly my friend's deck. But mm-hmm. a lot of times there'll be like a card or two that you play in their right. deck that makes you go, "Oh, I'd like to do that more. I don't want to build their deck. I want to build a card. I want to build a deck that uses that card uses these whatever. types of cards yeah. does something like that so
2: yeah I often do that I'll, I'll take notes during a game and be like
1: I really like that interaction I want to do more of that uh Craig Blanchett has this great system where he just takes pictures of cards while we're playing yeah so he's constantly like what is that hold on can I borrow it and he just takes a picture <laughs> of it and at the end of every commander game he's got two or three pictures of cards that he just wants to go find uses for or cards that he thought were cool not even cards necessarily he's like this goes in this deck just like that's a cool card oh Craig he's the best All right, our 10th question and final
2: question comes from Ben Stanford. And uh, he has a very Stanford question. It's a very smart question. uh, The question is, when is it smart to
1: spare opponents, if ever? So I assume Ben means like when you have the possibility to kill them. Yeah, you're holding them. You're when like, is it smart not to kill them?
2: Um, when they have things to promise you. Now here's the thing: everyone at that point is going to have a whole lot of things to promise you. It's like the bad guy when he's holding on to the cliff, right? It's uh, M- not Mufasa, it's it's Scar when he's he's, Scar. he's 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 right about to fall off, and he goes, "No, please don't! I'll do anything, whatever you want." They uh,
1: all, all they always say that. They always say that. Sometimes it's worth it, though. Sometimes it is, especially,
2: I've, you know, and this is how I've gotten myself out of sticky situations before. Even though I kind of know I'm still going to lose because I'm just way too low and that if anyone else wants to try and kill me, they might be able to. Even just giving yourself one turn cycle to cause a little more chaos and havoc, I don't know, I, I, I do enjoy that quite a bit. Especially, like, I've had times where, again, like, I have, like, a sulfuric vortex or a card that's going to kill me or do something. i am being like, well, you know what? I'm going out anyway, so I, you know, let me do something at least on the way out. It's not going to affect you, I promise, but it's going to kill everyone else. And because you spared me, I will dedicate my life to you.
1: I will dedicate you. (laughs) I think a lot of it has to do with a couple of things. One is how hard of a lockdown do you have on the fact that you can KO them? How fragile is it? Is it like I have a vent sentinel, you're at, you know, in three defenders, and you're at three? Yeah. Which means on board, as long as I hold this mana open, there's basically nothing you can do. I can kill you. Even if you board wipe in response, I can kill you. Yeah. You, I got a real... And I can do it at instant speed. That's a real hard lockdown on somebody, which means you can kind of trust any promise they make, and you can sort of use that to your advantage, because maybe you've got that, but they have a bunch of creatures right now. Mm-hmm. So it'd be advantageous for you to have them point all those creatures at one of your enemies. And they're going to die anyway, so you can be like, okay, I'll I'll give you one more turn, but you have to attack everything at this person. You cannot cast anything that targets any of my permanents. You cannot hit my life total or anything like that. The only thing you can do is it has to be pointed at them. In which case, I will not kill you. And you make the terms of the deal. That can totally be worth it. And it can give you sort of a weapon that you didn't have. Use me as your weapon. And a lot of times, they're happy to do it. It gives them another turn. They get to do fun stuff. Yeah, you know, and they might find a way out of it. There's always that little ray of hope. Well, maybe I have something with split second, or maybe yeah. I have a uh, something that counters an ability, or blah blah blah,
2: like time you know. stop or something. Yeah. Here's the thing too: is you'll know that the person is making a good deal and has a good case if other players at the table start being like, "No, no, no, no kill him, kill him! What are you doing? No, 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 end their life! I don't want to have to deal with this like one rogue person coming after me because." you you know essentially have them
1: by a leash because they can die at any point thanks to you i also think a big factor is where you you're seated in comparison to them at the table oh right so i would really want that person to be going next after me because i and i would want to have a very hard lockdown and not fragile like or or else i can trust them so if it's jimmy i know he's not going to just lie to me yeah right yeah, what was the question? When can I lie? It's very doubtful. I would say, don't attack me. You say, okay, I'm not going to attack you. Then you would just attack me, that like you know, no, that's not going to happen. So in that case, I would consider that a pretty hard lock for the next turn. So I'll give you one more turn. You have to attack everything at so and so, but I would still not want to make that deal if you're. Going right before me, I want you to be the next player acting because I don't want the other two players to now have the ability right, to, to influence affect, you. Yeah, yeah, and change what might happen. They might make a different deal with you, or they might kill a bunch of your stuff. In which case, well, you might as well just be dead because now you can't help me anyway. Yeah. What uh, if someone was like, "Look, I have a way for you to gain life, right? Like, yeah.
2: and then then everything changes. You yeah. Know? So it, it you definitely yeah you want to make sure that you have as much control over that as possible.
1: Yeah. So I'm really interested in where everybody's sitting when I make those deals in comparison to the people I want them to act against, and and in comparison to me. So i I think that's another factor knowledge um, of their deck too let's say they promise something and and i've
2: done this before where i'm like i can do as i'm gonna do as much damage as i can to this person next turn and it's like five
1: <laughs> but hey if that's your promise that was my promise i remember and going five it. ah that's horrible I'm i not think making it was actually seven again. at this point yeah <laughs>
2: but you know so obviously you want to look at their deck and make sure that whatever they are promising they can follow through on to whatever your acceptable term is i think it is a little bad manners to be like look i have cryptic command i'm going to use it on this part you know instead of saying the cards out loud. I'm never a huge fan of that. But if it does come down to that, having some insurance knowing what they're going to do is good.
1: Yeah, yeah. So Especially if I, it's on board. But to answer your question, Ben, I think it is smart to spare opponents when they're useful to you, and there's a very low percentage chance that they can kind of get out of the vice right. that you've got them in. And also, you want to be in a position that the other players in the table aren't. So if you've got the Vent Sentinel, like I said, and you can just you know ping them to death... But somebody else can t- also ping them to death. That means it's too it's too wishy-washy in that circumstance. The other person yeah. can make the same promise you did. Then what do they do? I want to be the only person that has the power of, of life and death over them at this moment, um, obviously, at the very least. Uh, otherwise, it's just not worth the risk. I'm probably just going to take them out if it's too like if it's too muddy. Yeah. But if it's clear, listen, I'm the only one that can get rid of them, but I can get rid of them anytime I want, then they're a weapon in my
2: hand. Yep. Now it's just up to them whether or not they want to make that deal, too. Because yeah. a lot of opponents will
1: just be like, I'm dead, I die. A lot of times, and I've been that person where I don't want to be the weapon in their hand. I just don't. Yeah, especially if I'm that person is like, no, just go ahead and kill me. Re- or, yeah, like, I'm not going ob- yeah. to let you control me like this. I'm not going to bow to your terrorist demands. Yeah, and I got a lot of respect for that player, too. He's like, nope, just kill me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, because I will not... I just won't be ruled by somebody else. And that's fine too. But there's plenty of players who're like, "Listen, I will live at any means necessary." Yeah, let me give give me one more turn, please. (laughs) Let me throw one more punch, even if it's at a random person. Yeah. (laughs) All right, that's going to do it for our Q and A episode today. It's a little shorter, sorry, because Jimmy's in China. Yeah.
2: (laughs) We're also recording three podcasts today, and I can already feel myself slipping into the realms of chaos and despair. Okay, so
1: let's move on to to the listeners. Do you have any questions you'd like us to answer in a future episode? Leave a comment. Send us a tweet or an email. And uh, we tend to do these every few months as the questions pile up yeah. and we think there are enough enough questions with interesting answers. Or. And I know a
2: lot of people have emailed us with long paragraphs, pages of stuff. And just because we don't answer them maybe in that email necessarily, also it, it would take us a little bit of time to really process all of it. We do sometimes put them in these episodes instead. So we do see all of your emails. Make sure you guys tweet at us or uh, on Patreon as well. If someone asks us a question or messages us, we get back to them as soon as possible because they are our most treasured friends and supporters.
1: I mean, I love all the comments, tweets, emails, Facebook messages that are helping us to figure out what we can talk about on the show. That's just super helpful to us. So if you have anything that you think about, now I'm not promising we're gonna use it all, but quite a few of our episodes have come from little seeds or directly from people saying, you know what? This is an interesting thing that I'd like to hear you guys talk about. So really appreciate that. You are helping the show when you do that. Another way to help the show (laughs) is to go to cardkingdomcom slash command zone. We say this all the time, but it's totally true. You're going to buy Magic cards anyway. Yeah. You're listening to a Magic podcast about Commander. You buy Magic cards. So all you have to do is use that affiliate link when you choose to buy your cards, and you're simultaneously getting cards and keeping the Command Zone and game nights on the air. Yep.
2: So cardkingdom.com slash zone, They'll just take you right to their front page, peruse their wares, and buy something
1: yeah i mean i Easy. hope that we've demonstrated you know over the years we've given you a at least a few hours of entertainment i mean i hope that's worth a couple of bucks for you
2: i hope so too uh our other sponsor for the show of course ultra pro they are products you can buy at card kingdom at any lgs really uh and you know what they make high quality products they printed these playmats that you see in front of you right now and we chose them to help print our playmats because the print quality was so high these will last a very long time i've taken mine to Many pre-releases folded it up, stuffed it in a bag, and it still looks just as good as the day I got it. So, thank you UltraPro for being a sponsor of the show.
1: Oh, end step time. End step. I got lost. I was like, "Where are we? Where are? This we? is where we talk about something cool outside the world of magic." Speaking of world, world. Z. Z. I I am in China, and I think. Okay, <laughs> okay. we haven't said that. We're enough. planning into the future here, but I think. Sorry if we're wrong by a day or two, but I think two days ago from when you're watching this was League of Legends,
2: Legends Worlds. Yeah, League of Legends Worlds Championship taking place in Beijing where TSM took it all the way home. Incredible <laughs> what had come from behind victory. No one would have expected that TSM actually got eliminated before the semifinals this year. So it can't be them. Uh, I be- what are you doing exactly while you're there? So um, I believe I'm going to be doing a lot of talent relations and a lot of coordination behind the scenes as I speak Chinese fluently, and there are a lot of people that don't speak Chinese fluently. And there's gonna be a whole week of rehearsals. There's an awesome League of Legends live show. Hopefully you guys can catch it. It's gonna be on Twitch. They'll re upload it to YouTube. But those things feature... get
1: like the same amount of views as like the Super Bowl. Yeah. It's crazy. We have like forty million people
2: watch it. Yeah, we have tons of musical artists playing as well as some Chinese artists. Uh, and there's gonna be a huge amount of cosplayers there. They're gonna be showing off their cosplay in front of visuals as well as being accompanied by an orchestra. There's going to be a lot of stuff going on. It's an awesome celebration of the community aspect of League of Legends, what I really got into League for originally, and what I hosted the show about. So if you guys watch that on Twitch, you'll uh, potentially see me running around behind the scenes and making sure everyone gets their places on time and all that. And then the week prior to that, I'm going to make sure I take everyone to as many delicious restaurants as possible. Jimmy
1: Wong, where do you find the time? I actually, where did you actually. find the cloning machine? You found the Ryan Seacrest cloning machine, didn't you? Um, slowly dying right now <laughs> jimmy juggling a lot of projects right Always. now it's pretty amazing uh, something else that's amazing oh skt is gonna win bro. so for say. real probably f- for pete by the way i don't know i haven't uh, paid attention to
2: unfortunately in a couple of years not many not many teams can go four in a row at the world championships they
1: won the last three <laughs> Yeah. okay they're probably gonna win they seem <laughs> dominant yeah they have the tom brady of the sport oh Faker. well then they're definitely gonna win did everybody see Cassius Marsh, by the way, in that Ooh, field goal? he, he blocked, blocked a, couple, a field goal, It would have been about three weeks ago now. He but did
2: like a little stint
1: and just jumped right in between the blocks. He was like, jump like this between so that he fit between the two guys yeah. sideways and then just jump and block. And the best was Magic Twitter. Uh, Terry, put up the field goal block thing there, even though the NFL will probably get mad at us. Just put up small <laughs> so they don't see it. Um, <laughs> Magic Twitter went crazy, and my best were there was a whole bunch of tweets that were some variation on... Um, Cassius Marsh with the counter spell. Yeah, right. <laughs> Boom. <laughs> Boom. Nope. Hashtag nope.
2: I, I think a field goal is a three CMC spell. That would make sense to me, right? Yeah, yeah. So that was sick though. And Bill Belichick even got riled up about dude, it. Dude, you though. never
1: see Belichick celebrate, but he was
2: like,
0: Yeah,
1: nice, nice. Good job, Cassius. So, good to see Cash doing well over Great there. Great to see Cash doing well. All right, back to our sister podcast, The Masters of Modern. Alex Kessler and Ben Bateman. They talk about Surprise, Surprise, the modern format and all things competitive magic. There's a whole lot of modern events next year, so it's a format that you might want to think about jumping into and those guys know their stuff, so that's a good place to find out about it. You can find them at Collected.Company right next to us or follow them on Twitter at the MMCast.
2: The editor for this show is Terry Robertson and he does the video and audio podcast, so if you want to watch the video version, please head on over to youtube.com slash the command zone podcast. If you haven't seen it, we have a very cool backdrop where we are currently uh, hanging out on azkanta, azkanta. azkanta. we've azkanta. searched for it we found it and uh we came we saw we made a podcast it's nice yeah it's really nice here i'm surprised you can't hear the giant waterfall splashing behind us but yeah you can have to well there's soundproof windows didn't we have wind at one point
1: scary wind scary wind yeah <laughs> just like sleepy hollow wind
2: and special thanks to jeffrey palmer who does the living cards animation such as this one behind us. we have a couple people helping us jeffrey did this one in particular um awesome guy make sure you follow him on twitter at living cards mtg all right everybody thanks for listening and we will see you next time
1: peace